On today's episode, we have Mike Boyle. I'm sure that I'm not alone when I say I grew up as a coach on Mike Boyle strength and conditioning. When I was a graduate student in a strength and conditioning program, I honestly did not want to become a strength coach. It wasn't until I started coaching for an MBSC Thrive and learning the MBSC system that I realized this profession could be more than just barbells and hard-headed coaching tactics. Why did I resonate so much with his style of training? Because it was more than just weights and iron. It was about dissecting athletic movement, programming using categorical thinking, and teaching. He's a legend in the field, and today we sit down and try to stay focused on training with pain and translating those lessons into managing clients and training staff. I don't need to introduce him too much, but here are a few key points. In 1996, Mike co-founded Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, one of the first for-profit strength and conditioning companies in the world. Prior to founding MBSC, Mike served as the head strength and conditioning coach at Boston University for 15 years. He also served as the strength and conditioning coach for the Boston Bruins and the U.S. Women's Olympic ice hockey team. In this episode, we dive into the following topics. Mike's current training status and his pain management strategies, lessons he used to communicate and program for clients in pain, exercise selection and the concept of orthopedic cost, lessons moving from athletes to general population clients, how to create hospitality in your business, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is our episode with Mike Boyle. I'm Tim Richard, And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. So Mike, what was your last workout with specific exercises? All right. So my last workout uh, was... I actually did uh, a 30-minute zone two assault bike ride yesterday. That was my last. I am realizing that as I age, I'm always the one talking about filling the empty buckets. I hate steady state aerobic work. It is my least favorite thing to do. I will say that I have done almost none of it in the last 20 years. So I've made a conscious effort to say, okay, I'm going to try to do a little more steady state. So Joe Squizero and I, one of our coaches, have a kind of standing appointment for Thursday, and we will bang out that 30-minute ride. That's amazing. We probably have the uh, opposite interest there. But uh, what makes you choose the assault bike versus other stuff? Uh, it's really one of the few things I can still do. I think as you age, I, I was talking about this the other day. I did a conditioning talk for our Thrive um, licensed people and. I said, life is about crossing things off the list. And so things like slide board and running and things like that are getting to the point where, okay, I can't do that. I can still exercise with some intensity on the assault bike. So I really like that. And I think that's why I've become a really big fan in general of the assault bike, because you can go for a really long time from an aging perspective and really get like we do the other days of the week, we do really aggressive interval stuff and we do 
at the point now, some of it's just stupid in terms of what we're doing, but you can do it. And there's very little orthopedic ramification to it. So I think that's a really big plus. Yeah, no, I totally agree. In the the arms, it's like full body versus just. Exactly. Well, that's the difference. I've been, I mean, I've been an Airdyne fan. I had Airdynes. I have videos of my Bruins guys riding the Airdynes in the very early 1990s because it just made sense to me. When I first got on that bike, I thought, why would you sit on a bike and just move your legs from a sports perspective? I can understand that if you're a cyclist, great. That's how cyclists cycle. But a, a sporting person who's looking to, I hate the word cross-train, but I guess it's a, a word that a lot of people can identify with. If you're looking to cross-train, it just makes sense to force your, your heart to supply blood to your arms and legs at the same time, because that's what's going to happen in everything else that we do. So to me, it was so much more specific as cardiovascular pieces went that I thought, this is great. At one point, we kind of got on the Versa Climber bandwagon, but we realized no one was getting on it with us. So the Versa Climber, as cool as it is, or some people were big kind of Jacob's Ladder fans, the average fitness person, you give them a Versa Climber workout, they're going to look at you and think, okay, that's the last time I'm ever doing that. That was the worst thing ever. Yeah. So the Assault Bike, I think, is a little more, uh, as a little more middle-of-the-road appeal. Yeah, I think especially for you too, like the Jacob's Ladder takes up way too much space. And we had a bunch of Versa climbers at Northeastern. We literally created like an incentive program for people to do because that was like the last choice people would get on. They hated those things. Um, the yeah, best the talk I did the other day, I just was re-watching the talks. I always re-watch them to see if there are things I can pick up from a speaking standpoint. But one of the things that I said is with our adult clients, if we give them any option, if we say, I said, if I said, pull the sled with your teeth or ride the bike, there'd be people would be like, okay, we're going to, I'll pull the sled with my teeth today. It's people still. And then uh, that is the Versa climber is a step up from that. So. Yeah. I uh, was actually driving through Wakefield like maybe last year and there was a, an assault bike, an airdyne bike uh, right on the side of the road for free. Best piece of equipment. Still have it today. It drives a lot of rotation too, especially if you don't let yourself get pulled forward because that's where I see a lot of people mess up. Um, so I absolutely love that piece of equipment. Yeah, and it gets you out of that that cycling position. I don't like, I tell people all the time, when you think cycling, particularly like competitive type road cycling, lends itself very much to sort of the seated postural changes that we don't want in terms of the shortening of our anterior abdominals and the shortening of our pecs and the forward head position, you all that is negated pretty much on the assault bike or the air dyno, whatever you're using these dual action kind of air-based bikes have a lot of positives that I think people don't see, but you do have to kind of, like you said, incentive you, there's some coercion going on there in terms of trying to get people on them. Yeah, especially with the bikes, um, like you said, like the bent over position, sitting on a bike, you're already giving someone a hinge demand. So like having them bend over is putting them in that position a little bit more. So those upright bikes are fantastic. Okay. Um, so what does your training look like outside of uh, that specific workout? And how has it maybe changed even in the past couple of years? So I try to lift twice a week. And I've been trying to do that more. I think for a long time, I just sort of relied on the fact that 
if I'm demonstrating in the weight room, I'm getting a lot done in terms of there was a time when I would be doing a lot of jumping, a lot of high speed movement and demonstrating exercises. And, and I used to almost think that was enough. And then I've started to realize, particularly as I've aged, that it's not. So now I've had to develop what I would call a joint friendly strength program because I do have some shoulder issues that I won't even say it's old age related because I had my I had a shoulder surgery. I had my first shoulder surgery in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was a swimmer. And I think between swimming and then going from swimming to a lifting and probably at a time when it was very pressing oriented, we were doing bench press and weighted dips. And there was probably a lot of volume of upper body pressing stuff. So I had some, I actually had, it's really interesting. Uh, people today would hear it and go, you had a what? But I had an acromionectomy. I probably had one of the last acromionectomies that was done in terms of they would actually cut your deltoid off the bone and then take the end of your acromion off. That was the solution at that time for impingement was to literally go in and cut the end of your acromion off because usually what had happened was your acromion was starting to grow down into that joint space. And in the pre-arthroscopic age, they couldn't just go in and shave it down. So they'd basically go in and take it off. Imagine that. that so that was about 1984. And that was from years of just, uh, you know, swimming for a while and bench pressing. I can always remember thinking as a swimmer, getting out of the pool never felt good to me. I always thought, oh, I hate that sensation of having to kind of press myself up out of the pool. Mm-hmm. So I we have a, uh, it's called, a, um, oh my God, what's his name? They call it an AT400 in the uh, Perform Better catalog. And it's this orange cable gadget where you can do standing presses and standing rows. I don't know if you saw them when you were at our gym, but they're about Probably. about four feet long with a really big pulley in the center. So imagine it's a standing it's a standing cable press apparatus, but it's a, even a little more joint friendly and you can do it bilaterally. So I use that almost exclusively when I press and when I pull because I find that I think for me with my shoulders, when I'm pressing and I'm standing and the force is pushing my humeral head back into the joint, that feels pretty good. I don't get shoulder pain when I do that. So I can press pain-free. I can do a, a lot of different rows without trouble, but it's just as easy to turn around and, and reverse my body position and row that way. And then I I always try to think, okay, something knee dominant, something hip dominant, and then some kind of core exercise. I don't, honestly, I probably do one set, maybe two sets twice a week. And that's about it. I'm sort of back in the old hit days of one set to failure. I'll kind of do one set, just push it out till I feel like, not even really till I can't do another one, but until the point where it's hard. And then I stop, I keep the volume super low so I can not get inflamed. I'm finding my joints get inflamed really, really easy now. At, I'm going to be 64 in two weeks. So I don't tolerate much volume at all. And I don't tolerate much load at all. So I can't, if I lift heavy, I'm sore in all the wrong places. And if I lift in higher volume, I'm sore in all the wrong places. And I always say to people, when you realize, okay, I'm lifting and my anterior shoulder is sore and I'm getting anterior knee pain and I'm getting low back pain or I'm getting neck pain. It's thinking, okay, I'm getting all the wrong results from the training that I'm doing. So I really try to avoid that and think, okay, find things that, as I, as I said, that are really joint friendly 
and that will allow me to do something, but not do something that makes me feel worse as opposed to feel better. Hmm. So this is really interesting to me. So this is basically the theme of like uh, the season with Tim and I's. You know, you work specifically why I was like so interested in talking to you with general population clients, but you have so much experience with a wide variety. And when people come to see you in, in your gym, you know, it's not someone has pain or has no pain. There's kind of this this blend of especially you with your training history. So I guess the first question I have is you kind of indicated how you manage it a little bit. But maybe like, how do you think about it? How do you plan accordingly a little bit more in your your training? Do you see other people for these types of issues? You're kind of just, you keep with the fitness, but you adapt through what you're kind of feeling at the time. I think one, we look at this kind of programming with everybody now that we're dealing with in the adult market. So everybody's doing Definitely our program, I would say, is lower volume. You would never see as a, for instance, for us, there's never going to be any kind of five times five type stuff. Just not going to happen. We're going to be one set, two sets. I mean, high volume for us, three sets of an exercise. And three sets would basically be a warm-up and two sets. So I think we're we're realizing that we can prescribe really low volume stuff. We're prescribing really joint-friendly stuff. So we're looking at things all the time and thinking, okay, what's the joint friendliest version of this exercise? So I always say I'm sort of the knees over ankles guy. You know, if there's a knees over toes guy, I'm the knees over ankles guy. Because <laughs> when you realize that every people with patellofemoral pain are going to do much better with things like Spanish squats and things where you're encouraging them to sit back and not move their tibia forward. Mm-hmm. So we're always trying to, that's where, I mean, and you've been through kind of our system, but we're always thinking about this, progression regression idea and sort of where is the pain-free baseline and i mean there's no if you look at our programming there's pretty much zero bilateral lifting for our adults so Mm -hmm. you won't see a squat you won't see a deadlift you'll never see a bar behind somebody's neck you'll actually never see in our case i realized this one day when i was talking about this you'll never see one of our adults with a bar period it it, the only time it People said, oh, you use a bar, you put it in the landmine. And I'm like, you're right. We put a bar in the landmine. <laughs> but other than that, we don't. So none of our adults barbell bench press, none of our adults barbell squat, none of our adults barbell deadlift. And it's interesting because I had posted an article about exercises that I thought were bad for people over 40. And I basically said, all the ones everybody likes, deadlifts, squats, bench press, cleans, those are all, you know, pull-ups i would put those all in the bad for people over 40 category and yet people people would look at me and be like what are you talking about and i think well we're gonna we're gonna exercise in all those patterns we'll do all the same patterns but we'll find i i keep using the term joint friendly but bars aren't joint friendly because bars limit degree of freedom so as soon as i grab a bar with my hands no matter where i put it the bar path has now been determined by the fact that I've connected my right and my left hand mm-hmm. via the bar, meaning that I can't internally or externally rotate. I'm going to have a, a great di- difficulty maneuvering myself around from a positioning standpoint. But if I give somebody, let's just say a double kettlebell front squat, they're going to be able to figure out where that sits well for them. 
and they're going to be able to, if I give them a goblet squat, they're going to be able to figure out, okay, I'm in a really nice joint friendly position because the thing, and this is, we go back to sort of the no bad exercises thing. Like there's a lot of really bad exercises, particularly for people as they're aging, because we know the offensive positions, right? Heavy extension is kind of an offensive position. If we really put you in kind of a heavy extension or what we might call a hyperextended spine position, that's going to piss off somebody's facets. If we have you lift inflection, that's going to piss off your, your posterior elements, your disc type elements. It, you know, if we add excessive amounts of compression, even, you know, it's going to piss off your cervical spine and potentially the compressive load is not going to be great for your lumbar spine. If we get you in extremes of external rotation, we know we're putting you in an impinged type position. So we're kind of looking at this and saying, gee, can we construct a really good program, but with better positions? Mm-hmm. And that's, I, it's what we've been doing. And I think in some ways we've been doing it unconsciously. It It's maybe not super intentional just because from experience, we knew what we wanted to do. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I think it comes from your experience, what I want to dive into. But Tim and I, last episode that we recorded, I think it's coming out way after this, but we talk exclusively about uh, the term adaptive upside and reflecting back a lot. That's basically, I feel like you provide coaches and especially for myself, this huge advantage because I remember being in grad school and I actually didn't want to be a strength conditioning coach. Um, I, I didn't really connect with it. I was doing a lot of barbell weightlifting and I was having a lot of neck issues And then I started working, funny that you have that sweatshirt on right now, I started working at an MBSC Thrive, and then I did an internship with Sarah Cahill at um, Northeastern. And so I basically went through your system, I coached your programs, Um, I was at your facility for a lot of things early on in my career, and I learned a different way to train from what I was kind of learning in a different environment, and I really connected to it mostly because it is a system of an adaptive upside, which means like you're changing the system in a positive way. We're still, you know, targeting all those things we can adapt to. But the upside is we're managing the trade-offs that come with everything, the consequences. So you're training more of like uh, movement quality with also improving strength instead of this sole focus on like loading, which as you probably know, just chasing that with athletes or general population clients, it's just not the best idea most of the time. Um, So I think that phrase in and of itself really reminds me of of your system for all this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think we, I coined the term orthopedic cost, which I think is very much the same idea. And my feeling was that every exercise brings with it some level of orthopedic cost in terms of, and we're always going to try to balance the cost and the benefit. So I'm going to look at an exercise and think the back squat has a really heavy orthopedic cost and it may have a pretty good benefit, but I would look at it and think, and this is where, as I started to explore unilateral training, thinking, wow, I can get potentially greater benefit unilaterally because of the bilateral deficit idea, but I can drastically decrease on the cost side. And if you were thinking about this sort of as an accountant, 
in saying that we're going to look at it from an accounting perspective. And I said, wow, I can get way more benefit, make way more money on this side with way less expense on the other side. Anybody bright in the field would say, hey, that's absolutely the way to do it. But we don't do that in strength and conditioning. We don't look at that idea. We just, we sort of think there's these tremendous sunk cost exercises that we just do. We fucking do them because they're the ones that we're supposed to do. Excuse my language. And, <laughs> um, and we're so dumb. I think as a profession, like we're embarrassingly dumb a lot of the time in our rigidity, in our attachment to exercises. I remember having a slide one time with a picture of a cow. And I was, you know, I said, you know, don't kill my sacred cow. Because every time I say don't squat, there's just some guy who cringes and just looks like, you know, the automatic reaction is, I hate Mike Boyle. He's such a loser. Because they just can't accept the fact that I might be right. It's disturbing to them. Well, I think overall, as people, and this applies to everything, we tend, especially when we're younger, tend not to believe that things that we're doing have a cost or effect on other people. So in the field of strength conditioning, I spent so many time just learning squat progressions and um, barbell progressions, but nothing was ever talked about of, it was just all positive activity. There's only positives from this. There was never a talk of the negative types of consequences or what this could lead to, like joint range of motion restrictions, which you kind of led into. So I feel like, and especially like outside of the weight room, like um, my actions, do I think about how they affect other people, right? So it, I feel like it's almost like you have to go through the experience sometimes. And I think that's why training as a trainer is so important because you have to put yourself through the things that you're asking other people do and almost experience the consequences that come with it. Yeah, I'd agree. I, they always, the, the, you know, the, the old cliche experience is wasted on the young and um, and you get that. And that's why it's so hard. I always, uh, I, I have a bunch of guys, I call them the charter members of the, I used to think Mike Boyle was a pussy club because they're all guys that have gotten older and have since apologized to me about the things they used to say. They'd say like, Oh, I used to hate you. And I used to say stuff about you. And now I realize what you're talking about because now I'm 40 and my back really bothers me and I can't do the things. And I see where you were coming from. And I think for a lot of time in this, because most of us kind of cut our teeth in the bulletproof world of college where, where you can really beat the crap out of kids because someone's bringing you just this endless supply of filet mignon to work with over and over again. And so you can do really lame, vanilla, stupid programming and get really good results. And you can sit there in that four year revolving environment and think that you're really smart. I wrote a really good article one time called training an athlete for 17 years. Cause, and it was about Jay Pandolfo who's now the BU hockey coach, which is interesting, but it specifically centered around Jay. Cause I trained Jay for 17 years. I trained him from the time he was 18 years old to the time he retired in the NHL. And it was the same idea. Every year was another line drawn through another exercise. Jay was a kid that at 17, he showed up at BU. He could already bench press 300 pounds. He was just an absolute physical beast. But I can remember one year him coming back. I think he had broken his wrist and it was like, okay, cleans are out. 
And then another year, he had a third-degree shoulder separation. You know, I mean, a complete. So when you think third-degree, like, if you looked at him now, you can still see his collarbone sticking through his dress shirt. Like, it never, those never really heal. They just scar with a massive space in there. And it was like, okay, conventional barbell bench press, out. And then one year, he started to develop a little bit of back pain. And we thought, okay, back squat, out. And over the course of this 17-year period, by the end, he was training probably more like me. But he was still playing in the National Hockey League and still making money. And and you started to look at this process. And I don't think people, the average strength coach doesn't get to do that. He doesn't see the end result of his work Mm -hmm. and realize, okay, wow, this is what is going to happen over time, whether I wanted to or not. And then worse yet, they become, they're almost science deniers. You know, they're almost flat earthers because- they don't want to accept the fact that they're wrong. Even when we point out to them, hey, look, we've got, I mean, piles and piles of anecdotal evidence that you're not right. But these, like, much like the flat earth crowd, right? They just look at you and think, no, I, I am right. I, you know, I've been doing this the same thing. You know, some people say, and college, you know, they say <clears throat> sometimes you can have a 20 year career or you can have a one year career 20 times over. College is you have a four-year career that just revolves. Mm -hmm. You grind some guys up, you spit them out as seniors. You grind some more up, you spit them out as seniors. You probably don't have a lot of your guys come back who are playing professionally and train with you after they're done and see what the net result of a lot of this stuff is. You just get a new, you you know, you get a new bunch of fresh meat. You hate to use it that way, but those guys get delivered to you as freshmen again and you get to start over. And I did that as a college strength coach. I can remember, I think part of, I I forget what article, I wrote an article and I basically, I, it was kind of apologetic in the sense that I realized that our programming worked for soft freshmen and sophomores. And then suddenly for juniors and seniors, it didn't work as well. And we didn't see the same kind of gains that we saw. And what we took to doing was sort of blaming the juniors and seniors. Okay, they're, you know, you're not eating well enough. You're not getting enough sleep. You're out partying too much because the program's no longer working. Instead of looking at the program and saying, well, wait a second. the I always say the, the first year, like freshman year is free strength, right? The guy just shows up, girl shows up, whatever. They just get stronger because they've never done anything and you get them in the weight room and they make really good progress. And then sophomore year, exactly. Sophomore year, they they have, it's you get that same thing again. Not quite as good, but it's still coming pretty easy then junior year all of a sudden you think oh wow this kid it's kind of flatlined arm he's not getting any faster his vertical's not going up his lifts aren't going up and then because your natural reaction as a strength coach is well i can blame one of two people here either myself or the kid (laughs) so i automatically choose to blame the kid instead of looking at my programming and saying hey wait and i I had this, I was thinking today, like we have some incredibly strong girls. I had Alex Carpenter the other day just cleaned 175 for three, which for a, a female hockey player, it's most I've ever seen. And But we run this kind of easy strength sort of program where I think some people come in and think, wow. And we've had people accuse us of this. It's too easy. We had some girls who don't train with us anymore. They said, it's too easy. You know, there's not enough yelling. There's not enough. And I'm thinking, because there doesn't have to be. If you just keep showing up on a consistent basis and we keep engaging this progressive resistance idea, 
you'll keep getting better. And we've seen, we've had females at least, because I've had more elite females in the last decade than elite males who were continuing to make progress well into their late twenties and some into their thirties where they were still increasing their speed, still increasing their vertical jump in, in very late stages of their career because we just were taking our time. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't have that like long-term kind of, they don't have patience basically. Um, when you started your private business, what are maybe just like a few lessons you've learned from moving to athletic population to now more working with people who don't really have training or like sport history? It's really interesting. So, and we're still learning this today. I'm actually, I was, I was putting a presentation together for our next staff meeting about this. I'm getting much better at dealing with the person who's never exercised before, because I think that's your, if you think about the market, the market is the 85% of the people who don't exercise and who have never joined a gym. That's the market. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we talk about, I have this a young lady named Jess Tolman who's working for us, who's just freaking awesome. Like she's so, you know, right. She's just so good and so smart. And I mean, she gets it on a level that a lot of people are never going to get it. But we were talking yesterday because I brought one of my friends in who was one of these guys. I have trained him twice and he's basically a guy who's never worked up. He's, been working you know he's 50 years old his kids are athletes he's never really done anything he's never lifted weights he's never jumped you know never probably played sports as a kid but after high school there was probably nothing really athletic that was done and one of the things that i said to her is integrating him into the community is probably the most important thing getting him over the fact that this is a kind of a cool place and part of it i said i introduced him to staff people all day this is you know this is pat this is Kevin. This is Steve introducing him. And then I told him about some of the other people. I didn't really introduce him to the other people. Cause I said, I don't want to overwhelm him with people, but I kind of gave him the backstory. Like, Hey, you know, this is Ralph, like Ralph's been training here for 24 years. He was, you know, he's 70, whatever, you know, and now he's, he's getting started when he was in his forties. And so you just start to get them to to understand the community aspect. It's not the training part, the training. We literally, the first day we did body weight, split squats, body weight, squats, dumbbell bench press and X pull downs. I mean, that was about what we did exclusive of some foam rolling and some stretching and a little, little bit of warm up. Because what I don't want to do is make him so incredibly sore that he thinks, Oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me yet. For so many people in our field, that's actually their goal when they get that new person is I, I want, I always say to somebody, my goal for you is you should get up tomorrow and think, I worked out a little bit. I, you know, I'm a little sore. Yeah. That should be about it. That should be the full extent of the experience. If you, if you say to me, oh my God, I got up and you know, I couldn't get out of bed or I, you know, I couldn't get off the toilet or whatever. I'm like, oh my, I screwed this up. I did a bad, I did a really bad first session. So I almost tend, almost every time my first session is one set and that's it. Yeah. I think that too, in terms of like the communication aspect, because there's a lot of people, especially if someone comes to see you with no training history and they maybe ha- have had some pain in the past, um, they could perceive that soreness as pain like something is wrong and if you didn't tell them that in advance it could be like a huge problem um that's one of the biggest lessons that i probably learned when i moved from athletics to gen pop 
it was the biggest life lesson I've ever had. And I'm very thankful for it. But the communication, um, the fear, because I'm sure you've seen this of like, athletes have no fear of doing anything. Like you can tell someone to do something and they'd be like, yeah, no problem. But people who don't have any training history, there's definitely some fear of like even being into the gym or maybe doing a lunge because they associate that with like knee pain and things like that. And then your, your exercise selection gets a little bit smaller with like gen pop clients. Um, do you kind of, have you seen that? Yes, without question. And I think it's really interesting. We have uh, we have a, a woman who works with her name is Sue Hessen. Now, Sue is in amazing shape. She's a mom, but if you saw her, she's an, an absolute physical specimen. But she had come from Washington, D.C. She knew a friend of mine who was a trainer at a place that she worked at in Washington. But she came to Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. She actually got in the door and turned around and walked out the first time. Because people, and that's what we have to get people to realize is even the greeting, making sure we always say, make sure that you're there, make sure that you're smiling, make sure that you're making them comfortable. Because you walk in and you go, oh shit, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of people. And I I was saying to Jess, one of the things that I think would be really good is to get a like two videos, one of what the person perceives they see when they walk in versus what we see because they could walk into our Tuesday, Thursday, middle school group. And it might be a bunch of 12 year old kids doing cleans, but they might come in and in their mind, be in the middle of an Under Armour commercial. Do you know what I mean? Where like these football players are grunting and groaning and throwing things. So, and then, then they look up and they see the the jerseys and they see the racks and they see, and they think, okay, wrong place. I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. Let's let, let me get out of here and, and I'll try to figure out a, another way to exercise. I'll try to find, find some place where I can start over. So, yeah, I think the biggest thing when you get, you know, when you make that switch to the general population, I mean, it's, it's so simple, but realizing, I mean, not only are they not athletes, but they may have a, a totally negative experience. They may have had a bad experience with gym class. They may totally associate exercise either with punishment or being able to dress in clothing that they didn't feel was flattering. And like you think about gym, you know, you're not going to get a grade if you don't dress out. And then if you dress, you know, you have like a gym uniform and you think depending on who you were, maybe that gym uniform wasn't particularly flattering for you. So you have all these negative associations yeah. with exercise. Yeah. Like someone like, the past. yeah, someone like me, I walk into your gym and I'm like, this is awesome. Right. But I actually, I've struggled a lot because I actually rent space um, from a CrossFit gym. And, you know, that's like to the umph degree of the kind of the stuff that you were talking about, you know, people walking around with their shirts off and throwing barbells around. So I have to really make sure that if someone new is coming in to talk to him on the phone before and make sure I like make sure they know the like uh, what they're walking into and then always greet them at the door so I can kind of control the situations like smile, greet, make sure like we're friendly and then like give them like a tour just so they kind of feel a little bit comfortable with the environment. Exactly. And that's I mean, and obviously magnified if you're taking them into a CrossFit, th that whole effect is super magnified in terms of what they what they're going to see and then what they're going to perceive is going to happen to them next because again we've got uh, one of my favorite stories I, I had a i trained a guy who was an mit professor who was one of my favorite clients just an awesome guy this guy ken zolot at 
just absolutely one of my favorite people ever. But the first day, I'm kind of taking him through, and I I started to get the the idea as I was training regular people that all right, I need to modify what I'm doing a little bit. I can't just take my athlete program and throw it at this person. I was smart enough at least to figure that out. But we're gonna get ready to go throw a medicine ball, and I hand Ken the medicine ball, and he kind of stands there looking at the medicine ball, looking at me, and looking at the medicine ball, and he turns to me and he said, Mike, just so you know. He said, I was a computer science major at Syracuse in 1977. He said, I do not have much experience throwing and catching balls. And I thought, wow. So I I was like, all right. I said, back up, get away from the wall. I said, just chuck it against the wall as hard as you can and don't even worry about catching it. He said, we're going to take the catching part out. We're just going to work on the, you know, because I still wanted to think about rotary power, but I was just whipping against the wall. Let it hit the ground. We'll walk over, we'll pick it up and we'll do it again. But it was that moment for me of thinking, wow, I have so, in some ways, so much in common with this guy. And then in another way, so little in common, you know, we're the same age. We have kind of similar interests in certain areas, but I grew up, my father was a basketball coach. I've been bouncing a basketball since the dawn of time. I can't remember when we weren't in the gym bouncing balls. Mm-hmm. And then this guy who went to, MIT or, you know, went to Syracuse had never played sports as a kid growing up. And so many of those people, they, they're the ones that need the benefit of what we're doing. And they're the ones that are in some ways immediately put off by the average. And you're like, you're different. You're probably more in the Jess Tolman category from a personal standpoint. I feel like I am too, in the sense that I'm not your average meathead strength coach. We were joking yesterday about, um, I always, when people meet me, I, the, the standard thing is always, oh, I thought you'd be bigger. Because they just think strength coach, and then they see me, and I'm sort of this massive disappointment. And it's like, oh, you you know, you're bald, you got glasses, you don't, you're not really muscular. Like, you don't, you don't have any of the stuff that I'm expecting a strength coach to have. And luckily for me, I had reputation so the reputation could carry me at certain points in time but uh, some people just would think wow this this guy's pretty darn average yeah i mean i feel like that's what you've built like your brand around in terms of like this right versus just taking like your shirt off kind of a thing um but that's i feel like that's why your brand has grown so much is because you've shown people almost another way and and that's I think that's why, honestly, I agree. I, but I always say we're sort of an acquired taste for the more intelligent coach or trainer. Somebody who's really thinking about it is going to look at what we're doing and is probably going to have that little head scratch moment of, wow, this is not what I'm used to. It wasn't what I was taught, but gosh, it makes sense Mm -hmm. because I went through that so many times in my own career. I can remember and as much as he's become a grumpy old man, I can remember hearing Vern Gambetta the first time and thinking, hmm, that makes sense. A lot of the things he was saying yeah. just made sense. And I remember he listening to Gary Gray for the first time and thinking, wow, I remember that thinking, wow, this really makes sense. He was talking about functional anatomy. And I remember thinking, functional anatomy and just sitting there realizing this is so kind of off the board but he's absolutely right. Like I just remember thinking, Oh, he's right. And then I met McGill, you know, so I listened to Stuart McGill, same thing and thinking, wow. And 
one of the things I think I've been able to do better than most is I can quickly recognize who's smarter than me and then start listening to them as opposed to starting to think of reasons why I don't like them. So this is a question for you. This is like almost a personal question because I feel like the tables have turned with you as you've kind of moved up, not, not solely. And it's kind of good and humbling that you do have that perspective, but people do look towards you and what are maybe some lessons and things that you're probably more aware of now, now that your personal brand has gotten so big. I mean, when you go to seminars, you're the keynote speaker, like people come to see you and like, and maybe online too, like you deal with more negativity. And uh, I mean, you probably deal with 90% positive things, but maybe then the the negative, negative ones kind of stick a little bit more. And that's something a lot of people don't really have to do with. It's almost like an aspect of fame in a way in the profession. Um, How has that maybe impacted you at all? Well, I think in some ways, initially, it was a little bit negative because initially I think I wanted to fight back. And now I think it's made me, I think, be a little more humble and project a little more humility and be like, I had the same thing. I was having this conversation with Jess yesterday from a presentation standpoint. I'm really self-deprecating intentionally. I want it to be funny. I want to make fun of me. I want to make fun of the way that I look. I want to, I want people to look and I want there to be a kind of, believable every man aspect to this where people can look at me and think yeah i could i could absolutely do this like look at this guy i mean he's was never a really good athlete he's never looked the part he's never been any of the things that we were told you would need to be in order to be successful in the field but he appears to be successful in the field so mm-hmm. i think i've tried to play up on that a little bit more because I think it plays well for the average trainer as opposed to I can remember and you're too young, but there was a time when say the, the Charles Poliquins and the Paul checks and some of these guys, they were the guys that everybody went to see, but they were really confrontational. They, they probably weren't necessarily nice to the attendees. They weren't funny. They weren't having any fun up there. They were, they were jacked, you know, they had the tight shirts on, but they were super smart guys. I learned a ton from them, but I also used to look at them and think, hmm, if I get to that point, I definitely don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy that knows that he's on top and is now going to use that opportunity to, to kind of spit down on everybody else. I want to be the opposite in terms of if I get to the point where I'm on top, I want to get there and make everyone think, Hey, I can absolutely do this. This is, this is a hundred percent achievable for the average person. Cause I've said this a million times in talks. I don't think I'm necessarily way smarter than everybody else. I just think I've, I've kind of hung in and I've continued as I alluded to when we started this kind of line of questioning, I've, been really good about figuring out who was smarter than me and then listening and not i think one of the things that and you think about sort of basic things in business books right do we listen to respond or do we listen to learn i'm not trying to respond i'm not i always laugh when people say i don't agree with mcgill and i think you don't agree with mcgill i always look at that and think how many years exactly have you spent in the lab researching spines for you to be in a point where you think I don't agree with this guy. And the answer to that almost invariably is zero, right? Like this guy has spent no time 
He just knows and he doesn't like the information. I don't like what he's saying. What he's saying doesn't mesh with what I believe. Therefore, I disagree. As opposed to looking like I look at it and think, okay, why does a guy who spent his entire life, professional life anyway, in this particular area of endeavor, why does he feel this way? That's the thought that goes in my mind right away. Why is he so anti-flexion? We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebowen-training.com for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds of positional instructional videos to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT Exercise Database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals use it to easily build out their online training programs with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, this database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to michellebowen-training.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. And, and would he be anti-flexion? like he is if he didn't really believe it was bad for you. Right. And so I, I think we're, we're just, we're way more defensive than introspective kind of as a field. Yeah. I think that's a good perspective to have like being approachable. And then not only when you go to educational events, you know, I've, I've, I've seen you talk a hundred times, but it's all, it's the information that you're giving, but also watching people to see how you kind of want to behave and the characteristics you kind of want to take on. Um, cause you, cause you're right. Like you go to a presentation, that was kind of a good point of some of the people that you, you've seen in the past and kind of the direction of the, the, the field overall in the past couple of years. That's, that's important. But then also for, for you, and even in my, my lifetime, I'm, I'm so thankful that I'd never had a cell phone in high school or college, but um, the digital world versus the physical world, because like you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with anyone and, you know, you're not going to 
place any negative emotion because everyone has different opinions, but you can say anything you want online on the digital world. It's almost like you're living in two different things here. So I think that that's a lot, that's very hard to manage for people. And that's why I'm so interested with uh, people in kind of your position of there is two different worlds because those people that you kind of give example with the Stuart McGill, it's like, well, why does it matter if you don't agree with them? It doesn't affect you. So why are you placing a negative emotional energy towards it? You know what I mean? Like, so like you can train people differently. Who who cares? Like that doesn't doesn't matter, right? But what we've realized, you're right. Like in the digital world, we've we create our level of expertise most often through disagreement as opposed to through agreement. So the way that you can begin to position yourself as an expert is probably to controversially disagree with another expert. And and we've been thrust into sort of another whole world of this conflict where as you said any the keyboard warrior, you know, anybody that anybody that has access to a computer can now position themselves as an expert and the easiest way to do that is to go after another expert. It's probably not yeah. much different if we think of the worlds of politics or religion or whatever it is, you find something to disagree with. Yeah. You try to recruit people to your side based on, on a lot of times your persuasiveness, either in the written word or in the spoken word, depending on what medium you're going to choose. Are you on YouTube or are you on Twitter? And I, and then Instagram is different because now Instagram has allowed you to do that probably through humor with with memes and with kind of mean videos and mm-hmm. so there's all these different avenues that people have chosen and i think one of the things that i did really well in the beginning is i just waded into a lot of this stuff i can remember being so ryan lee i can remember him being the first guy to kind of embrace the internet and say hey the internet's going to change strength and conditioning and i guess same thing i remember looking at ryan and thinking i don't know if ryan knows that much about training but Ryan knows a lot about selling and Ryan knows a lot about the internet. So I started to pay attention to Ryan and I became friendly with Ryan and I spoke at Ryan's events. And I remember we went to, I went to some, you know, get rich on the internet event that he had either sponsored or was part of or whatever it was. And I remember a woman, I still, um, Oh my God, Carrie something. I can't think of her name, but she was the barefoot executive on Twitter. That was her name. And she was talking about how she was teaching people to run home-based businesses. Carrie Wilkerson was her name. But she said, you got to get on Twitter. And I just remember sitting there and I had my cell phone and I just typed in twitter.com and I joined Twitter. Just because I thought, okay, this is this is where it's going. And yeah. I can remember with Ryan Lee. I can remember with Ryan Lee. Not, I remember sitting with Mark Verstegen and thinking and looking at Mark and saying, Mark, you know, he makes more money than you and me put together. This, we were both young. I was probably, you know, I was 45. Mark was 35. Mark was like, you're right. I said, yeah, we got to, we got to get our shit together in terms of at that time, I didn't have an email address. I can remember talking to Mark and Mark was like, I'll email you. And I was like, no, you won't. And he was like, yeah, I will. And I'm like, no, you won't. Yeah. Was, I think what do you mean you won't. And he was, I was like, I don't even have an email address. I don't have an email account. I don't even know. What, I don't know what email is. Yeah. I- since I've had my own business and I've learned, I've had to learn a lot about marketing and sales. That's the hat I put on when I'm interacting with the digital world, because 
that's what people are doing. If they're selling something, which most of the people in our profession like are, that's why they're posting. So their message is geared towards a marketing unit, geared towards shifting people in a direction to make a sale on them or turn them into a customer. So that's like how I kind of try to like view things, but I don't know. It's, it's always interesting for, for to hear from people like you. Yeah. Well, it's different because you're a little more digital native in terms of because of your age. I had, was t- telling somebody the story the other day. I, had, I did a podcast with somebody and it was a younger kid. And he said, well, what was the biggest technological advance in your career? And I said, oh, the computer. And it, like you just like laughed. Look, he was like, what? Isn't that crazy? I was like, the computer. And he just kind of looked at me like, what do you mean? And I said, we didn't have computers. <laughs> and he honestly couldn't, like, he couldn't even fathom the fact, like, like you were a strength coach before there were computers. And I was like, well, we had a mainframe computer at Springfield College that was, like, as big as the whole basement of mm-hmm. you know, whatever Judd Jim or whatever building it was in. I said, but no one had personal computers. No one had computers in their offices. I said, we... You know, I said, we mimeographed things. We typed, you know, we gave the secretary our the, the list, the squad list, and they typed it out. And then we mimeographed squad lists so we'd have someplace to write test results down. So the computer was really helpful. The cell phone yeah. was really helpful. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were things, there were a lot of stuff that was really helpful, but it wasn't BBT. It wasn't the invention of the Tendo unit that yeah. changed it for us. There were things that came far before that. And even for me, I, I mean, I think we got our first office computer 1996, maybe. Wow. That's literally crazy. Yeah. Um, I have two uh, quick questions for you to, to revert back to uh, the pain stuff. But, you know, you're in a leadership position with your trainers. So going all the way back to the persistent pain stuff, how do you kind of train your staff um, to deal with people who are in pain or persistent pain, mostly. Because um, I'm sure there's acute things, right? Most likely people are going to walk into your gym who are great. And then maybe they walk in on Monday and they're like, hey, golf kind of messed up my back. And they they tell you right on the spot, right? <laughs> no one ever tells you in advance. Uh, but then there's also the people who always kind of like have an issue with them. So how do you kind of direct your staff towards those things? Well, there's a couple of things. One, as you said, I always I use the the um, the description all the time. Uh, what you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. So I always tell our staff, watch people move because it's amazing. You'll say people will come in and tell you excuse me that morning, but they won't. Sometimes people will come in and not say anything and then try to get through the workout and you'll watch them and they'll be rubbing their shoulder or they'll be there, keep stretching out their back or whatever. And then you ask them what's going on. And then they say, well, I was golfing and my back was sore when I came in today, but I just thought I'd be able to get through the workout kind of thing. So we really try to train our staff to be observant, watch for people doing things. I always say people, I, we literally talk about the key spots. So anterior part of your shoulder, low back, anterior part of your knee. Like if I watch people who are, you know, all of a sudden they're rubbing around their kneecap or they're rubbing their shoulder over here or they're rubbing their low back, that person is screaming at me that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I need to go to that person and say, what's going on? And then I need to be able to have my, that's why we always talk about progression, regression. 
I need to have my regression in hand. Like, okay, what do I want this person to do? Because what I don't want to do if I can avoid it is say, don't do that exercise. What I'd like to be able to do is say, hey, let's try this version of this exercise. And hopefully that's not going to hurt. The other thing that we do from a pain perspective is I'm a big, some people would always say, I, actually Sue Falzon, if you saw Sue talk at Perform Better this year, I don't know if you were there, but she said she was fine with three out of 10 pain. And I went back to our staff and I said, ignore what Sue said. She's a physical therapist. She has much greater capability to deal with pain than you do. We have to be at zero out of 10. Mm -hmm. So we have to be looking. If someone says to me, okay, I have back pain, then we're going to try to figure out some way to work their anterior and posterior chains in a way that does not make their back hurt. And it might be regressed all the way back to wall sits or something, you know, or, you know, bridging, whatever it is, but I need you to find a way to get those muscles. And I, I hate to use the word engage, but to engage those muscles mm -hmm. in a pain-free way for that person. So that's what we're always trying to teach somebody is one, be observant for pain that people are not telling you about. Mm -hmm. And then two, know how to regress an exercise to the point to keep going back to something that will get them to pain free yet keep them in the pattern. So if we're doing knee dominant squat type pattern stuff, all right, what can I do? It might be, all right, we're going to go split squat ISO. Yep. I can do that. That doesn't hurt at all. Great. It might be wall squat for our bilateral uh, okay. knee dominant, but we're going to figure out some way to get those muscles working in a way that does not produce their pain. And that's the other thing is knowing you had to be, I, and I probably don't do a good enough job of educating the staff on this. I try, but it, it, it seems so repetitive to me sometimes. But one of the things that I always say is you want someone to be able to understand that there's a difference between the muscular discomfort of exercise and then delayed onset muscle soreness and then your pain that you know prevents you from doing something. And you've got to be able to distinguish on that continuum for people like, okay, at the end of this set, you might be a little bit uncomfortable. You might be uncomfortable two days from now. And some of that discomfort might be in your back, but if it's your back muscles, but it's not your pain, then that's okay. The other thing we try to get them to do is to check in really frequently. So my friend, Eric, that I was talking about that I started training I probably have texted, I probably texted him four times since Wednesday. I trained him Wednesday again for the second time. And I've sent him four texts. How do you feel? Because I want to know how he feels. I think, and you want, one of the things I found with clients, which I didn't, I was always just concerned. And maybe to a fault, maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome, maybe worried that things are going to blow up in my face if I do something wrong kind of thing. But I was always big on checking in with people. The thing that I didn't or that surprised me was how impressed people were that I checked in. So I would have people say things to me like, I can't believe you took the time to text me yesterday and ask how I was feeling. And I would think, well, isn't that what any reasonable or responsible trainer would do is yeah, if, yeah. if you worked out with them the first time that they'd check in and see how you were doing later on during that day and make sure nothing went drastically awry. And then you realize, no, most people don't do that. We are consistently and continually instructing our coaches that they need to be doing that. You need to be 
checking in with your people. And it goes back, I think it was Never Lose a Customer Again, which is a really good book if you haven't read it. But I think it was in that book. It's either Never Lose a Customer Again or Raving Fans or both. Mm -hmm. But in one of those two books, they say you have 60 days to basically engage that client. And at the end of 60 days, you're done. Either you have them or you don't. And so it's that first month or two months is really important in terms of, again, integrating them into the social fabric, into the community, getting them to the point where they know people when they come in, that they're being greeted by more than one person, that they know names, that they're comfortable at their time, that they're comfortable in their group, and then getting them from an exercise standpoint where they think, I, you want them to think, I'm getting better. Because my question always is, how do you feel when you get up in the morning? That's what I really want to know, because that's going to give you a pretty good barometer of are we succeeding or failing in terms of what we're trying to do. If someone says, oh, my God, you know, I usually feel pretty good getting out of bed. But after since we've been working out, you know, it takes me 20 minutes to get my socks on kind of thing. It's like, eh, we're not succeeding. We're failing versus somebody thinking, oh, yeah, I get up and I feel great. I feel better. I want that consistently. I feel better. That's awesome. I think like the two points that you made that I really love is the just the the language selection of let's do this or let's do this a little bit different because you're not saying you can't do this. It's it's literally just reframing the exercise that we're doing or how you're talking about it. And that was a big thing at Northeastern University when I was there. The injured athletes we wanted them in the weight rooms working out with a team not being excluded. So I was like, okay, like what are the athletes doing and what looks enough like it where they can complete it. So they feel like they're kind of involved. Um, And then the other point is is the touch points. I think it was you at the perform better summit who recommended the book um, unreasonable, unreasonable hospitality. Okay. And that's just an aspect of, it wasn't directly in that book, but it's just, touch points as much as possible with clients to show them that you're listening and that you care. That's probably the most important thing as well. So that's awesome that you guys do that. Well, it's funny you talk about wanting them to look like we'll do uh, when my son had his ACL, we'll do single leg cleans. It's like, okay, they're cleaning. And he's like, well, what am I doing? I'm like, you're doing single leg cleans, clean your right leg's fine. Go get, you know, put 75 pounds in the bar and do three sets of five on one leg. And, while everyone's clean and he's cleaning and he feels normally feels a part of it. And I always say to people, you're X percent injured. If you've got an injured knee, you're 25% injured. There's 25% that maybe we can't engage right now, but there's 75% that we can, which means when we do one leg squats, you're going to do one leg squats. You're just going to do them on the good leg. When we do one leg straight leg deadlift, everybody else is going to do both legs. You're only going to do, you know, if if you're limited in that way, but you're going to do everything that you can within the realm of possibility that matches up with what your team or what your group is doing so that you can, as you said, so that you can be included. And I wrote, it's really funny that you said that, but I wrote a post on, uh, on strengthcoach.com the other day on the forum, because someone was asking about clients not feeling the exercise in the right place. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that? And he said, my clients feel like if I, if I say, you're, are you supposed to feel it here? And then they don't, they feel like they're failing or they're doing it wrong. And I said, well, that's because you're handling it wrong. I said, all you have to say is, where do you feel that? And if they if they feel it in the wrong place, if they're feeling it on the 
on the backside versus the front. They're feeling it in their hamstrings versus their quads. All you have to say, well, let's try this. No more, no, oh, oh, wow, oh, you're supposed to, that should make your quads. No, let's try this. Mm -hmm. You just simply segue. And I always use, my favorite analogy is uh, when someone's cutting your hair, at which I haven't had my hair cut in, in a while, based on the fact that I don't have much. But when the barber drops the scissors, they never apologize for dropping the scissors. They simply reach over and grab another pair of scissors and continue cutting. They never look at you and go, oh, Michelle, I'm so, I can't believe I dropped this. I'm so sorry. You know, I hope I didn't make a mistake. Because then your first reaction would be like, this person doesn't know what they're doing. Like, they can't even hold on to their scissors. But I can't tell you how many times, you know, as a kid, somebody was cutting hair and then dropped scissors. And they just leave the scissors there and they grab the next pair of scissors and they keep going. You have to be that way as a trainer. When you see, okay, ooh, there was a little blip here in the radar. If I make a big deal about that, then it was a big deal. Yeah. If I gloss right over it, then the client's reaction is, well, obviously that wasn't a big deal. So I don't have a whole lot to worry about here. So again, there's, and that goes back to you go, everything interrelates unreasonable hospitality, right? It's, mm -hmm. about, it's about restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it could have literally, he could have written it about a gym. Yeah. He could have literally written it about, I was trying to get my gym to be the number one ranked gym in America instead of a Michelin four-star restaurant. Mm -hmm. Because the process would have been exactly the same. Just, we're going to change the stories. Like, I feel like I could, the book, the, looking at the book right now, it's sitting to my right. But I could just change the stories to stories about the gym. Mm -hmm. And the book really wouldn't be that much different. And I think that's why a lot of people have read it and enjoyed it because it's like you said, that ability, do you have, or is there someone there smiling when they come in? Is there somebody, you know, is someone going to, do you run out with their water bottle because they forgot their water bottle? Mm -hmm. this. Do you ask them about their kids? Do you, there's just so much about this that has nothing to do with your knowledge of fitness. And our problem is we have way too many people in the field with a good knowledge of fitness and just absolute dog shit interpersonal skills. <laughs> yeah. And even <laughs> like the point of narcissism, right? Yeah. All about them. For sure. My dad was a big component of writing cards. So after every like athletic season, I would have to write the coach a card and I mailed it to him. So I feel like that's like embedded in me. Um, so even just simply sending, no one sends cards anymore. Send like a handwritten card for like a birthday. It makes a world of difference to people because they just don't get it anymore. I um, can one of my son's coaches uh, after his, it was U12 hockey and his coach sat down and wrote a handwritten note to every kid on the team. Yeah. People and just don't. My son still remembers that, that, you know, Mr. Burns wrote me a handwritten note about my year and talked about how great my future was and how, I mean, that stuff, all of those things go so far. And we, again, we don't do we we do a way better job than most. And we're still not in my mind doing a good enough job in regards to those particular things, like you said, you know, we always try to make sure I always tell everybody, okay, Christmas, you should be buying your clients. If you have personal training clients, not us, we're going to buy personal training clients, some kind of gift for Christmas, but you should be buying something for your clients and it should be something thoughtful and something connected. It might be a book. It might be a candle. It might, 
but whatever connection you have with them, you should buy them something that reinforces that connection. And like our clients, particularly in our business, our trainer usually will get 10x back in terms of if you went out and said, okay, I spent, I got a $10 book from Mike. I'm probably coming in and giving you a $100 gift certificate to, to someplace. Yeah. And, and most of that is because they think like, oh my God, he always remembers, you know, I get a card at my birthday and he gets me this at Christmas. And I mean, we have guys now that we have one client, I mean, she gives the guys tickets to concerts at Fenway. She's a season ticket holder and she'll be like, oh, I bought the tickets for Zach Brown. I'm not going to go. You guys can go. And, and the guy's like, yeah, we're sitting on the floor at Zach Brown today, you know, with clients tickets and that same client, I won't mention her name because she'd be mad at me, but we'll do our, our Christmas fun drive or, you know, we do like adopt a family at Thanksgiving and adopt a family at Christmas. She'll show up with a $500 stop and shop gift card that she'll say, Oh, you can throw this, you know, throw this in the bag kind of thing. And you're like, yeah, we'll gladly throw 500 bucks in the bag for this family, which is great. But you know, you realize that if you do a good job and it, this is the same sort of, I've become very karmic as I've aged, but this stuff comes back to you times 10. It never, it never backfires and it almost always multiplies. Yeah. I feel like, and this has been like a big thing in the past year for me, the more generous I am, the, I feel just like a, almost like a better person. And I just feel like more satisfied with like just life in general. And, and I bet you'll find that you, you'll get more back. That's what I find. I, I feel like the more I give away, the more I get back, the more often, you know, I contribute to whatever cause it is, the more often something else comes back in my life unrelated. Yeah. And I, I really, I'm starting. I used to listen to a lot of that stuff and think uh, kind of touchy feely bullshit. Like I, you know, not me. And now I've very much uh, changed my view on those things. Wow. I, I love to hear that. Um, well, the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on, but uh, we're going to have a little time here, but um, you do have like a, a new book out recently new um, and you're such a pro prolific writer. Um, you want to kind of just mention the new book and kind of maybe what makes you such a prolific writer? Do you do it every single day? Uh, well, the new book is called Designing Strength Training Programs and Facilities. And it's actually, I rewrote it. I wrote it in 2004. I self-published it. It probably didn't sell a whole lot. It, I think it's the best book I've ever written. And much like any of the other books, they need to be rewritten, particularly from the training perspective. I remember reading through it and thinking, wow, there's a lot of good stuff in here. But there's a huge amount of things that are no longer pertinent or accurate or whatever it was. So I kind of went back and just went start to finish in the book from designing a facility and talking more about how we would do it now versus what we would have done in 2004. And then kind of re-exploring every aspect of training, pushing, pulling speed, whatever core mobility and writing. I always think I'm writing very much where I am at that time, which is always changing. Mm -hmm. But as far as writing, I always liked, I always liked reading. I always liked writing. I was very lucky. I had great, English teachers in high school. My godfather was actually my English teacher for two years in high school. And I had the same English teacher. I actually tried to find a Miss Bothwell, who I'd never have been able to find when I was in junior high school in Malden at BB Junior High. I had her for two years in a row. And I think my father, my father was the principal of my high school. 
I honestly think he somehow fixed it so I would have both of them twice because he knew that that I like to read and that I like to write. And he kind of made sure that I was in really good classes. I think there probably was some something afoot there that I didn't think a lot about when I was a kid, wondering why I had the same teacher two years in a row, two different times. But they both put a lot of emphasis on being able to write. And it was something I think when you're a, when you're a voracious reader, you probably become naturally a good writer because you're always reading good writing. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to write, you obviously you probably have a better understanding of at least of grammar and of how you want to express things. And then I knew when I was young that uh, because I grew up with muscle magazines. And I remember thinking the experts in the field were the people that wrote for muscle and fitness. They wrote for strength and health. They wrote for Ironman. Those were the only people that we knew of. The experts were writers. So I remember thinking, if I want to be an expert, I need to be writing for magazines like this. So I started very early on. I started, uh, I actually think I probably sent my first article to Powerlifting USA magazine when I, I might even have been in college or it might have been my first year at BU, but it was it was very early 80s. Mm-hmm. I sent in an article on training female powerlifters because I was training some women and talking about what I thought the differences were in training women versus training men. And then I wrote one for a bigger, faster, stronger magazine. I just would find, then I started writing for training and conditioning. So I just was finding places where I could uh, maybe show my expertise Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what led me to functional training for sports because uh, the, the human kinetics people had started to read what I was writing and they contacted me about writing functional training for sports. I got a letter, uh, Ed, I can't think of Ed, God, I'm, I should remember his last name, but he was what they called an acquisitions editor. So acquisitions editors basically try to get people to write books. And I got it at that time, it was a letter. So it was... Uh, it was probably late nineties, maybe early two thousands. And I remember calling him back and saying, how many people got this letter? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, it's a really nice letter. I said, but I don't believe I'm the only person that you think could write a book on functional training. And he said, actually, you happen to be the only person I think could write a book on functional training. He said, I think if we're going to publish a book on functional training that you should write it. And I thought, and I said, well, I'm flattered. I said, but I don't think I know what functional training is. So I don't think I'm the right guy for you. And he said, well, we think what you're writing about is functional training. We think what you're doing is functional training. And I conversation, I've told this story a million times, but I said, so I'll write a book and you'll call it functional training for sports, regardless of what I write. And he said, yeah, that's exactly our intention. He said, we want a book called functional training for sports. And we think you would be the right person to write the book. So I was doing another podcast with someone the other day, and I was saying that I'm stuck with the functional training thing because of that. It was not intentional on my part at all. But when things move forward, and I can remember with Ryan Lee, when we first started thinking about recording seminars, he was like, functional strength coach it's no brainer right we'll call it functional strength coach volume one with the idea that we're going to do a whole bunch of these and i thought yeah that probably makes sense based on the book 
But as a result, I'm kind of inextricably linked with the word functional when it was never something, if someone had said for you, you know, it said might choose the word that would best describe you. I don't think that would have been the word I picked. Yeah. I probably would have said, I probably would have said practical strength coach. That probably would have been more of a, along the lines of how I thought about myself, but I didn't make that choice. Yeah. It's kind of like a movie star who gets like funneled into one role. And then he's like known like that for the rest of his career. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was a great story. Thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. Um, All right. Thank you so much, Mike. I can't even tell you how much I appreciate your time. And I, I picked up on a bunch of stuff today, which was very nice. Um, So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. And let me know when it's out so I can uh, get people to listen to it. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thanks. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.